listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. My guest on this week's podcast is a former continuity announcer, regional newsreader, and TV and radio presenter. Mike Bodner joined Radio New Zealand as an announcer in 1978, then moved into television in the early 80s. His early explorations of publishing were a companion guide to the New Zealand road code for new drivers and a co-authored guide to personal security. Mike's latest book, Against the Current, is the story of how he and his wife left New Zealand for the UK, choosing instead to take a year-long detour through France, living and travelling in a boat. The book is an adapted compilation of blog posts written during that adventure and now self-published through Matador. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Paul. Delighted to be here. Got to ask you, first of all, how did you and your wife end up in France after a career like that? (laughs) It was a deliberate decision not to fly directly from New Zealand to Heathrow and return to the UK like that, which people do. We decided instead to take a a 12-month detour to live on a boat in France. And I have to say... Uh, and Liz would support me in this and blame me in this. <laughs> it was entirely my doing to begin with. It's something I'd wanted to do for years and years, and the opportunity arose. So we thought we'd we'd take it. And did it involve retirement? Did you leave work to do that? Was that you quitting work and going for something else? In a way, it was uh, a gap year, which is the way Liz likes to describe it, because uh, neither of us were ready to retire full-time but we did want to do something different that just broke the mold and partly that's why the book is called against the current because it went against current thinking to sell your home to uproot yourself from where you lived to abandon you your children and your friends and to go off and do something that sounds to most people exotic and to others completely foolhardy because you leave your income, uh, you leave your, your friends, your, your home, and, and you do this without any visible means of support. For the whole year that we were away, we had no income. And I'm not sure I'm getting any now from the book either, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you literally just took a leap and busked it. And also, I take it when you say that you left the children, they are grown up and left home now. Three of the four were, yes. They were they were at uh, in higher education or they were uh, flatting, whatever. They, they were in work. Uh, the youngest, who was 16 at the time we left, desperately wanted to come and finish her education in England anyway, and I think probably we could blame Hogwarts for that. But she, so, so she was quite happy that we were moving to the Northern Hemisphere. And so she went to school uh, to finish her education in England while we boarded our boat. That sounds too easy almost. <laughs> and had you had any sailing experience? Because, you know, I've been on the Norfolk Broads. I've, I, I know what it's like to just jump on a boat, get a bit of quick instruction and off you go. Uh, from from what I can see, that's pretty well where you were, isn't it? Pretty much. Neither of us had had any great degree of boating experience. As I mentioned in the book, Liz had gone on a booze cruise with some of her <laughs> fellow Oxford students on a, on a narrow boat on the English Canal. That har- hardly qualified her. And I had owned, I'd owned this boat in New Zealand for a year. I'd spent six months doing it up took it out on its maiden voyage and the engine failed. So even that couldn't really qualify me for this. No, we regard ourselves in the end uh, uh, of spending a year on on the boat in France uh, as what we uh, call an unqualified success because (laughs) during the voyage we were trying to find out from everybody from the boat broker who sold us our boat to people we met along the way, what qualifications do you need officially to cruise the French waterways? And nobody could really tell us. So, uh, no, we had no qualifications and we were very lucky not to lose our boat, to be honest. 
Oh, because presumably then you do need qualifications, do you, or some kind of license or I've something? Subsequently, had it confirmed through the Royal Yachting Association here that there are <laughs> there are two qualifications you need, uh, and I've got one of them, and I'm hopefully getting my uh, other one tomorrow. So yes. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> yes, I'll be able to go back and finally, with a clear conscience, cruise the inland waterways of France, knowing that if the gendarmes pull me over, I'll be able to show them my papier. <laughs> well, I know from my only experience is the Norfolk Broads, um, and I, I know that it can be pretty hairy at times. Um, we had um, we went through some yacht training class, and they were darting all over the place. I, I don't know what the etiquette of the water is or anything like that. Presumably you had challenges like this on your journey. Yes, we did. We, we learned as we went along. But I think we did it the right way. We, we took it easy, uh, and we didn't take too many risks. That doesn't mean we didn't get into trouble. There were a lot of hairy moments as detailed in the book. And, and I think that's probably what makes the book more of a, a, of a general travel adventure than something that would just appeal to boating people or people who wanted to go boating in France. So I call it, uh, it's definitely a travel book. It comes under the genre of travel. But in fact, it's the sort of book because of the adventures that we had everyday living in France it would appeal to people who are interested in boating, who are interested in travel in France, who are interested in France generally, and who just wanted to go on uh, an adventure rather like Bilbo Baggins. You know, it's, it's, it's escapism, and that's what we did. But we, the part of the joy of this sort of thing, Paul, for us was not knowing what the next day would bring. And that is something that in your general life, you know what the next day is going to bring. We didn't. That was great. I take it you are still together at yes. the end of all of this. <laughs> but, you know, in preparing for the adventure, I had read quite a lot of books about people who'd gone boating in France, some of whom had given up everything, bought a boat, you know, and committed to that sort of thing. And there were one particular couple. They were from New Zealand, funnily enough. And in the end, you got the impression that they weren't together. He loved it and she didn't and they couldn't meet in the middle. That's actually one of the big challenges. If you're going as a couple, you've got to think about that. It's a confined space to live in. It's like living in a caravan, or it's like living in a camper van, a trailer home. You know, for a short period of time, you are in a very confined space. Let me dig into how all this led to the book, because I know you've had some writing experience before. In the introduction, I mentioned this New Zealand road code for, for new drivers. Yeah. That sounds what, like the highway code? It's exactly like the highway code. Um, no, the experience there was a little bit different from self-publishing because the New Zealand government printing office, as it was called then, which was responsible for statutory publications and support material like that, came to me and said, would I like to write a book a companion guide to the New Zealand road code, highway code, for new drivers. So it, it wasn't so much the rules and regulations. It was more to do with how do they apply to you when you come to drive? What do you do? How do you drive, how do you drive confidently? How do you drive with skill and so forth? Um, but that was di a different business model, Paul, because they offered, they offered me the choice of a flat fee or a uh, commission on sales. And because I'd never done a book before, I thought – the safest bet was to go for a flat fee. So I got paid a fee. I wrote the book. It was up to them to sell it. How many they sold, I didn't really care, unless, of course, it was going to be a bestseller, in which case I'd have missed out. As it was, I think I chose the right course. <laughs> so did you feel um, suitably remunerated for the effort that you put in? Because I want to compare this with your self-publishing experience later on. That's a good point. I did at the time. I thought the flat fee that I got for the amount of work I'd put in, if I actually divided the number of hours against what I'd been paid was about right. I didn't feel cheated, and I'm not sure how many copies they sold. I know they printed 4,000, and, and um, I've got at least three left. 3,000? <laughs> no. point. Touche. No, three, three copies. Um, just, just purely for sentimental reasons. No, I, I was quite happy with that. And then when it came to the personal security book, again, it was the same people came to me and said, would we, would we write something on, on personal security? And I co-authored that with a colleague I was working with at the time. Same, same principle, and I don't feel cheated or, or anything. That was, that was my experience of publishing. 
Why did they come to you? Was it because you were in the public eye, uh, a celebrity, so to speak, and, and they just wanted somebody who's well known to do it? Or was there another reason for them coming to you? Oh, gosh, the first book, the Road Code book, I think somebody might have turned it down or couldn't do it. And they said to him, because he was a qualified driving instructor, that's right. And they said to him, do you know anybody who might do this? And he and I were in the same car club, and he knew I was involved in public relations, communications, writing for a living, uh, communicating for, for a living. So he asked, would I be interested? And that's where that came from. Um, right place, right time, really. Oh, fantastic. It's a very interesting experience to have had, and it almost predicted the future uh, in many ways. But you've done some writing as well. I, I always like to do a little bit of stalking for my interviewees, and, and I discovered a very, very old Google site um, that, that you've been writing on for some time. And I found there that you said you'd written a, a short children's story some time ago called The Vanished Stream and done an audiobook version. Yes, I did. Uh, that was because we lived on a property that was rural and we had a stream at the bottom of the garden and, and the, the water level would rise or fall according to the weather conditions and the time of year. And I just wondered one day, what would it be like if the water just disappeared? You know, you wake up one morning, you go down to the stream and actually the stream's there, but the water's not. So is this, (laughs) is there still a stream? No, there's a rocky bed uh, of, of sogginess and, and boulders. And I wrote the story then because my children were quite young and, and I, they used to love me reading stories to them. Of course, I was reading everybody else's stories, famous authors and not so famous, but nothing that I'd created myself. So that, that's where that came from. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I did try to see if I could find a publisher who would publish it, but uh, unfortunately, no. What about that audiobook version? I was very interested to see that you'd done that. Was that you reading it because you're in the media and you could do things like that? Exactly. I, I'd done radio announcing, television presenting. I've done voiceovers uh, and I've, I've done narration for documentaries and so forth. And I thought, well, why wouldn't I record an audio version of it? But at the time, it, the, the phrase audiobook uh, and, and, and I have to say podcast, Paul, didn't exist. Um, audiobook probably did. Yes, it did. But I just did it out of, out of interest and, and fun. I've never really pursued it. And I certainly didn't market it in any big way or meaningful way. Because one of, one of the things that struck me about your current book is that you haven't provided a, an audiobook version of it. And I, I would have thought you'd have been quite quick to market with that. <laughs> I'm working on it. I recorded the first two and a half chapters as a matter of interest to see how long and involved it would be to do audio, to actually read the whole thing exactly as it is printed. And it's quite involved. Uh, You may have had some involvement in this sort of thing yourself. Well, I know you've been involved in broadcasting, so you know if you're going to get a good product, it's not simply a matter of switching on a, a, a recording machine and reading from the pages. You actually want to deliver a good product, and you make mistakes. And so that requires, therefore, editing after you've done some recording, and that requires extra effort. And, and so I figured there was going to be quite a lot of work involved in producing an audio book, and I'm not, I'm, not re- I'm not going to be able to do it until I've got the time to put into it. I can't do it half-heartedly. So it's on my list of things to do. I'm pleased you said that because like you i've been in broadcasting and my view of it was there is a lot of work going to go into reading a book and frankly i don't want to do it uh the editing the recording you know the mess ups um it's a lot of reading to do and it's a it's a pretty demanding i would say uh task for somebody even if you're used to doing things like that so i outsource mine i just thought I, I, somebody else could do that i don't want to do it well interestingly i when I didn't investigate audiobooks and, and all the aspects of making them, I, I discovered there is a market for people to read, to, to narrate books. And uh, that was a, a market I'd never considered, but I certainly would now. I'm not sure whether uh, people say I've got a, a, a semi-Australian accent or some twang that they can hear, and they can hear it, I can't. I'm not sure whether that's going to get in the way. However, it's not going to stop me recording my own book. I I will. Interestingly, I had a a young sound engineer 
uh, I was talking with, and he, when he found out I was thinking of doing an audio book, he was dead keen because he wanted to add Foley to it. He wanted to put, you know, sound effects and music and all sorts mm. of things, which he'd done before. But uh, he said, so how long do you think it'll be in the finished product? He said, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, okay. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> mm. Yes, it's, um, uh, you know, it is, I think it is a, an art form, and I think you've got to be a particular kind of person to record the audio. Um, and I think probably you and I know that it is a big job, isn't it? It is a very big job and a skilled job, I think, as well. Much bigger than I think most people who haven't done it would realize but it's worth doing it properly and i think I'm, I'm not sure that i should be doing it myself perhaps i should be engaging a recording studio so that i have the right atmosphere the right acoustics the right equipment and a sound engineer who can stop and start according to need maybe we edit as we go along you've probably done that as, as well where you these days digitally of course you, you don't have to rewind the tape you can just erase the mistake and, and pick it up from where you left off. Yeah, certainly a lot quicker than the days of quarter-inch tape, which I'm assuming you also remember. Uh, even bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're talking about television, yeah, I even go back to film, so let's not go there. <laughs> we'll gloss over that and move on quickly then. I, I want to know whether you considered yourself a, a writer all along. I never did, no. no it, it dawned on me a few years ago, that everything I did in the communications industry stemmed from writing. And so therefore your foundation, your cornerstone was pen to paper, but it, it hadn't occurred to me. And so I never qualified myself as a writer. It was, uh, I was a script writer or I may have been, you know, a producer of videos. Uh, I may have written, as you say, children's stories, um, even even there, though, I never really regarded that as me being an author. That was me producing something that, that I had a, a vision for and I could create. But I never really thought writer with a capital W. Even now I have to pinch myself and think, okay, that's what I am. I now have a business card that says writer on it. It's very interesting that you say that, Mike, because I, I've been in broadcasting myself and I hadn't considered myself a writer. It was only when I, I started banging out the text that I thought to myself, do you know what? I've been doing this all my life, often under intense pressure to write for news bulletins. So I guess I, I must be a writer. I never even knew it. You must have had a, a similar experience. Absolutely. In, in fact, when I first joined the newsroom, I, was, I, I became a, a senior journalist graded senior journalist by default simply because I worked in the newsroom and they didn't have a category for news presenter. So they had to make me a senior journalist. And there I was surrounded by proper journalists, trained, qualified, uh, working their butts off day in, day out, producing news. And I felt quite a fraud. So I actually went and, to, and did a writing and, and editing course at a tertiary education institution so I could feel a little bit better about myself and that really is the only qualification that I've had as a writer. I finished uh, what, what might be called a, a part-time uh, mature studies course type thing, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah. Uh, so when you were on the boat, when you were in France, I'm, I'm interested to know when the idea of the book came up. You didn't presumably conceive it from the beginning. Did it just come along during the journey? Oh, if we go back about 15 years when I was in New Zealand and my children were still quite young, I said to my first wife, why don't we go and live on a narrow boat in England for a whole year, take the kids because they're still young and, and adaptable enough, and I'll write a book about it and it'll be an adventure. Uh, she was a little bit more risk averse to the idea than I was and didn't have the same level of enthusiasm. So it never happened. There were all sorts of reasons. She could think of all the reasons why we shouldn't do it, and I could think of all the reasons why we should. And she may have been right. You know, she may have saved our marriage by doing that, and she <laughs> may have saved the children's sanity. Um, and they've grown up lovely, and we parted amicably some years ago. But I never let go of the idea, so I'd always had the idea of writing a book. But to be honest, Paul, I'd pretty much forgotten about it. And then the concept, the idea of living on a boat in France, because New Zealand is so far away from Europe and because Liz and I were both born in England but never really lived and worked in the Northern Hemisphere as adults, we thought, 
let's let's do this and then the idea of the book resurfaced again but it wasn't until we'd finished the whole journey we lived on the boat for a year i'd blogged 90,000 words during that wow. period and i suddenly realized i've got enough material to turn this into a book and it but seriously it wasn't until we'd finished the journey that I realized I could turn that into a book and that other people might be interested in it. How much work did it take to move it from that episodic nature of a blog to a a book that could be read as as a whole, as an entirety? Good point, because a lot of people pleasingly had followed the blogs and waited with bated breath for the next episode. And when I decided to to turn it into a book, they said... (laughs) This really disappointed me. Well, we don't need to buy it because we've followed the blogs. We, we've read that. But the book's 128,000 words, roughly, and the blog was 90,000. So obviously there's more there. There was a lot more work involved in turning the blogs, which were like a diary, chronologically uh, capturing where we were at any one point and what we thought of where we were and all what had happened to us. But to turn that into more of a cogent cohesive story that has a flow to it a rhythm to it a style to it if if you like that was a lot more work than i realized so we were on the boat for a year blogged for a year and it probably took me another four to five months to turn that into a book another thing i want to ask you as a broadcaster is i i found that when you write as a broadcaster you write as you speak um, and and we call it journalese. I don't know whether you called it journalese in New Zealand, but yep. you you contract words. You just you write it as you say it. Yes, basically conversationally. Did you find yourself writing in that style with the book? I did because it was almost when you're blogging. I find it's almost like writing an email to somebody. And when you're writing an email to somebody, it's quite personal. You, I f- personally hear in my head myself telling the story to somebody so the words come out in a very personal style well i think they do (laughs) people can argue but you have to buy the book to find out um so so that that i found that process the blogging quite easy in fact i enjoyed it i looked forward to blogging because i wanted to tell people the story Uh, now that i've done that and the book's out i've got two other books in my head uh, with some notes scribbled on paper, and you know I just can't start on either of them. I can't get going because I'm not writing them to anybody. I need to write a blog about my next book, if you see what I mean. I think that's that's very interesting because uh, many new writers are just daunted by the task in front of them. If I said to you, I'd like you to write 128,000 words, you'd probably run a mile. But because you did it episodically, you took a step by step by step by step on your journey, it became bite-sized chunks i guess for you yes absolutely right and in fact the way i got into the self-publishing was a friend of mine here in liverpool had the year before self-published his first novel and he was very happy with the process and with the company that he'd used and i was very impressed with the quality of the product but what surprised me because i interviewed him for youtube as a way of promoting his book it's it's a little nine minute interview on self-publishing really you know the author's journey pretty much what you're doing now talking with me and he started off with a blank page an idea for the story but no map no no uh, schedule of events no writing uh, as what would you might call it um an outline or a plan yes no outline or, or plan to work to. He wrote it out of his head onto the page. I, I couldn't. I don't think I could do that. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So having, I mean, I think 128,000 words is, is one heck of an achievement, uh, however you wrote it. Yet now you're frightened off by the prospect of getting these two ideas down onto paper. Yes, because these ideas are fictional. And oh, well, one's fictional. One is sort of more uh, biographical. biographical. Um, the the fictional one really frightens me because I have got nothing to draw on but the idea, which is where he came from. Now I admire him intensely that he's actually came came up. He's come up with his with his first book. He's decided to self publish it, and he's done well overall. Although that's something else perhaps we should talk about is how do you how do you determine success as a self publisher? Before we get to that though, uh, I I'm frightened by 
all the blank, all I can see is blank pages ahead of me, Paul. I, I, I've got what I think is a good World War II thriller to go with the millions of other World War II thrillers. <laughs> uh, and I don't know where to start. I don't know how to start. But don't you get that um, sense of satisfaction when you look at your book on the shelf? Do you not get that immense feeling of pride and satisfaction that you've actually you've got one out? Most people talk about it all their lives and never actually get that far. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and holding it in your hand the day it gets delivered is like having a baby. Uh, you're, you're, you're holding your first child in your arms. And there's this miraculous thing that's just that exists now that didn't exist a few minutes ago until you actually ripped open the cardboard box. And I think that is a measure of success in itself for the self-published author for the for the mainstream published author of course the same thing would happen i was reading a, a column by clive james uh, where he talked about taking delivery of his latest poetry book and he echoed those words exactly that, that he took delivery of it he ripped it open uh <laughs> then he found a, an error straight away no. yeah i know i love it oh, no. yeah oh my baby's got a birthmark um oh. so so, but but yeah, that is a, an achievement. I'm really proud of it. I'm really pleased with it, and I'd like to do it again. Okay, so you, you opted for the, the the matador option. Did you ever think that you would do the agent rounds or go through the traditional route? Were, were you always going to do, go with matador because your friend had had such a good experience? Uh, I didn't know, to be honest, Paul. I, I I had heard so many stories of authors being rejected, and the old story of being able to wallpaper your study with rejection slips, including people like J.K. Rowling, as I think it's quite well known. I think she, Harry Potter was rejected by a number of, a large number of publishers. I'd heard so many stories there and it shouldn't have put me off, but it did. And I thought I really can't be bothered being rejected. I know that there are a lot of, stories in the same genre that I, because I read a lot of them in preparation for going on the boat. So I'd already read quite a lot and I wasn't short of material in the library or online. So I, I thought, no, there's no point in, in going to a mainstream publisher. I'll, I'll self-publish. And you know, one of the things that really woke me up to this, I went to the self-publishing conference in 2015 and somebody in one of the sessions said, if you're going to self-publish, the question you have to ask yourself is how much can you afford to lose? And that, that, was, that woke me up. That was quite telling. Well, absolutely, because you have, you have to shout out however you self-publish. You know, whether you go through somebody like Matador who manages the process um, or whether you do it yourself, um, you are going to put a lot more money in, certainly up front, than you get back for quite a long time. I think that's quite a shock for many new authors. Yeah. And it was a shock to me, too, because it, it, it said to me, well, if it's going to cost, let's, let's say, just pluck a figure out of the air. Let's say it's going to cost £3,000 to achieve your book in a, a reasonable volume that you could sell. If it's got to make £3,000 for you to break even in sales. And if it doesn't do that let's say it only reaches £1,000 worth, of, then you're two-thirds down. Are you prepared to lose £2,000? But then you have to ask yourself, Paul, have I lost £2,000 or have I gained a book that didn't exist before that people enjoy reading and that I'm proud of? I think the other thing is, is that what you've done is you've created an asset that you can sell for the rest of your life. It's not going to date. So you also have to look at the lifetime value of that asset, not just the immediate value of it within a launch period. It's going to go on for years, hopefully. Well, yes, I certainly hope so, but who knows? And and that's one of the things that I, I I've reached a conclusion about too. Is that when you you when you get the book in your arms, that's one major step, and that's an achievement. But in fact, that's the start of a process that you have to be involved in from there on. And the book doesn't sell itself as a self-publisher. You, unless you've bought, say, a marketing package or you've engaged some professional help to sell that book, you're doing it yourself. And you have to 
commit to that and you have to do so one of the things again that woke me up i was at the conference in 2015 i was having lunch with uh, a couple of people one of whom she had published self-published her book and it it was basically to do with it had a child as as its main focus it was a personal story not a not a fiction a fictional novel uh, not a novel it was her story there was a child at the center of it and i said are you how are you promoting it are you taking advantage of for example uh calendar events like world child's day world children's day or or that there's some event coming up that is to do with children or children's literature or whatever are you being involved in those and she looked at me blankly had no idea what i was talking about and i said well these are marketing opportunities um and i thought wow there's somebody who's gone up to all the trouble of self-publishing a story that means a lot to her she's got it out and it's finished that's the end of it there was no she had no idea about promotion hence my session at the last conference which was self-promotion for self-publishers it was an excellent session i was sitting in the session and found it fascinating and I think you've done an excellent job of self-promotion and that everybody should take a leaf out of your book because you've been on radio and television. And I guess you wouldn't be as intimidated about that as other people might be because you know the profession. So you've been on a Cheshire radio station. Is it the, the Cat 107.9 FM? Is that right? Is that, yep. And um, and then on Liverpool's Bay TV. Is that, is that a, t- a local TV station or something like yeah, that? Yeah, lo- local regional TV, yes. Fantastic. So can you just talk me through those? How easy, difficult was it to get those? Oh, it was very easy to, to do that because both of those in particular, the local TV and, and the Cheshire radio station, have programs dedicated to books. So wow. you have somebody in both circumstances, instances, whose role it is to be a book reviewer and to have guests on who are authors who've written and produced something. So that's important that authors realize there are people who are looking for people like you as a, as a new author to tell your story and, and to, and to promote your book, which is brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm hoping I can find some more. I'm still waiting for the mainstream review in the guardian that says this is the funniest book I've ever read. Uh, And I'm chasing celebrities as well. I'm still doing that, but um, no joy yet. And then I noticed also that you'd done a, good, a Goodreads giveaway. Uh, you'd had uh, 875 entries. I know. Uh, and uh, and you, not just the UK. I noticed you did, I think you did Canada, New Zealand probably. Did you also extend that too? Yes. Well, now that came about from another self-published author who I happened to be working with the last few months. He'd done the same thing. He said, look, you've got to do this because it costs you nothing to do. You get a whole lot of people who read your synopsis. They like the style of your book and they want to to win it for whatever reason as a, as a gift or to read themselves and he said from a promotional point of view it's, it's very easy you can choose how many books you want to give away and you can choose which countries the contest which is just simply a draw you only have to put your name in uh how many which countries that applies to so i i chose the u.s canada australia new zealand and the uk and just coincidentally uh the winners were all uh, two from Canada, one from the US, and those books were dispatched. And congratulations to them. Well done. But 875 people, as you pointed out, entered that competition. That's 875 people who had read the synopsis of my book and thought, oh, I wouldn't mind owning that or winning it. I can only hope now that the 872 that didn't win are all going to put orders in to buy it. But even if 10% of those did that, you know, that's 80 books I've sold. And the good thing is on Goodreads, they mark it to read um, as well. Yes. So although they might not want to read it immediately, it's in their list. It's, exactly. You've got under the skin, haven't you, exactly. which is brilliant. Yeah. So, but that's, that's new to me. I've only just finished and, and literally posted the books last week off to the winners. And so whether the roll-on effect from it is going to be significant or not remains to be seen. One of the tips, it was a really simple, practical tip, but one of the tips you gave in your talk was to that, that you can print Royal Mail online labels yeah. to post these books. Yeah. And I used to do that a, a couple of years ago when I was selling things on Amazon and had forgotten all about it. And I thought, yes, I've got some digital scales on my shelves <laughs> that I, I bought precisely to do that. But that's a really 
it's a really good point, isn't it? Because otherwise you'll spend your life in the queue at the post office. You do. And uh, look, I don't have the patience for queuing at the post office, especially when if you're posting a book off and you know how much it weighs and you know what the dimensions are and you get there and you know how much postage you're going to have to spend to buy the stamps to go on it, then if you can actually access Royal Mail online postage and do all that yourself and print it out on your printer and then stick it on your parcel and shove it in the mailbox, job done. Why not? So, yeah, good, but I, yeah, I want to tip. have some practical things that people who came to the session could actually do. Yeah. That talk was full of practical tips, and something I thought was really useful for all you authors was you emphasised the importance of business cards, bookmarks, and book stickers, which is one I haven't heard before, the stickers. Just talk us through that, because they were great and very practical. All right, well, the bookmarks are, I think, a, an obvious one for an author, because you've written a book, so you want to attract yourself to readers but uh, one of the things that i was promoting there was the way you use the bookmark so you can you can get them printed you can do them on, online yourself you can design your own and there are plenty of online companies who have templates and you can just put all your information or images in and and they will send them to you that they're economical and a, and a good promotional tool it's how you use them so i sneak down to the library and i put my bookmarks into all the travel books that were to do with so bill bryson's books in my library have got all my bookmarks in them Excellent. in particular so is paul theroux so is tony hawk um so yeah i just thought that was such a an obvious one to do but the other thing is of course you can say to the library because a lot of libraries seem to have bookmarks available for free you could say to the librarian look I've, I've got these you stock my book on your shelves you have to make sure they do that of course first and 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 they will presumably well, I've, I've not been turned away yet. They're quite happy to have free bookmarks for their customers. That was easy. The business card is a professional thing. When you go to independent bookshops as a self-published author, I do find the bookshop owners, one of the first questions they ask you is, is it self-published? And that really grates with me because it's almost like they want to put you into a compartment. They all almost want to know, have you published this through a mainstream publisher, in which case I will treat you more professionally? Or have you self-published, which means you're a little bit further down the scale, but I may still listen to you. So I think you need to be professional to appeal to them. And your book, if you've self-published it through a reputable company, will have the look and feel of a professionally published book. And that's exactly what it is. You've just chosen to pay for it yourself. But the second thing is then you need to represent yourself professionally. So you need a business card. You need to be able to leave them with a, a copy of the book or two on sale or return. Leave them with a business card that reflects the book, the uh, livery of it, you know, the branding of it, uh, and, and with all your details on. And then the other thing, the stickers, that happened because I went to New Zealand last November because I figured there was a large audience for my book in New Zealand because it's a story – it's as much a story about escaping corporate life and going to live on a boat in France as it is escaping New Zealand and going to live on the, in the Northern Hemisphere in a novel way. And, and New Zealanders love travel, so I figured there was a big market there. But I realized the book, when I went there, uh, when I was going to New Zealand, didn't actually have anything that said on it, this is a story about moving from New Zealand to France. And so I got a sticker made, again, through an online company that simply said, NZ to France, would you up stumps to live on a boat? Question mark. And I just stuck it on the front of all the books that I had in New Zealand. And I figured that was good. And then the other thing that occurred to me was, why don't, why don't I do that with the independent bookshops here in Merseyside? There's nothing to identify that I'm a local author. So, and I haven't done this yet, Paul, I have to admit. Oh, um, I need to get a sticker made that says local author so I can put it on the books that are available here in the independent bookshops and in the library. I think that's a lovely tip. I just think that's a great tip. And the, the thing is nowadays that these things don't cost anything to produce. I, I got a load of bookmarks done and they cost, I, I got you know a couple of hundred done, I think, for 50, 60 pounds, something like yep. that on both sides. Wonderful marketing tool. Absolutely. And I'm, I've just ordered 400 more to be printed because I'm going to France soon. I'm going back to our boat. I'm going to be surrounded by people 
who of all nationalities who have boats there and who are interested in boating in France. They're a major target audience for me. Now, I don't want to have to take 150 books with me, but I will take the bookmarks because they take up no space at all. And I'll be handing them out uh, every conceivable opportunity. A very easy and, I think, hopefully successful uh, promotional marketing tool. I thought the talk that you did at the self-publishing conference was great, and I've got your permission to share your notes from that, and I'll put that on your resources links underneath this interview. So thank you for that, because I think it's just a brilliant resource for new authors or aspiring authors, and there are some tips there that I haven't heard other people give, so it's great. Thank you for that. You're too kind. Thank you. Now, um, talking about your website, um, which is one of the marketing tips that you give in, the, in, that, in that presentation, you say you've got to have a website and you've done a good job of that. Um, you publish articles on there and you've, at the time of recording this interview, just published a new article called How Do You Measure Your Success or Measure Success as a Self-Published Author? And I was having a read of that last night before we spoke. And, and it's almost, it's quite a painfully truthful article, I think, for self-published authors. What made you write that and think about that as a topic i know two other self-published authors here in merseyside and we've had this conversation and i'd i'd also reached and so they (laughs) they like me thought there are degrees of success for a self-published author and a lot of it is in your head it could be that your measure of success is your bank balance as a result of sales in which case, that's fine. And nobody would argue that if you sold 130,000 copies of uh, a self-published book, that it wasn't a success. Of course it is. Even if you only got one pound out of each sale, you've still got 130,000 pounds. Who could argue with that? But at the same time, what if you've done your book for a different reason? What if you've done it to record your personal Uh, the pure existence, the simple existence of the book, which is neatly bound and looks professional and captures your family's story for posterity, for your children, for their children, then that's a success. It it doesn't have to be any more than that. And so that's that's where all that thinking came from. It also is, for me, underlined by the fact that my print run was running out. The publisher's got, I think, three books left, and I've got about ten, and that's it. So if The Guardian gave me a glowing review tomorrow, I'd be in trouble because (laughs) people were beating a path to my door wanting copies of the book or going to their bookshops or wherever online to order it. They'd be finding uh, it's not available right now. So I had to think, okay, is that a measure of success that you've sold out and You've read the article, and hopefully other other people will as well. I wanted to share the fact that you could sell out, still not cover your costs or make a lot of money, and it could and you it could still be successful. I mean, I'm going to carry on promoting it. If I'm going to promote it, I have to have stock, so therefore I have to order some more books to be printed, and I've done that. And within the next two to three weeks, I'll have another two hundred copies. That's as far. That's as brave as I'm going to be. But you know, that's what I've decided to do. So a print run. What was your original print run? Two or three hundred. Three hundred. Three hundred. So you, so you shifted three hundred effectively since you launched. Uh, fifty of those, approximately fifty of those, have been given away for nothing, for reviewers, as prizes, as goodwill gestures to people who had helped with the book in some way. I had, you know, I engaged people to do proofreading for me uh, on a. <laughs> on a casual basis, not for money, but for um, reward in kind. Um, and so, you know, you, I, I've, I've written off 50 of the 300. And so that's like an, an investment, if you like, in, in um, promoting, particularly if you send them to reviewers. You have to, you have to give them away. And then I've sold personally about 125, for which I get full return. Recommended retail price is 9.99. If I sell them personally for that price, that's what I get. And that's the biggest profit I can get from selling a book. If it goes through any online retailer, any bookshop, or the publishers, they all take a cut. And that varies 
to as high as 65% for some of them. So I haven't made, when you, when you say, you know, 250 have been sold, but not 250 have been sold at the full price that I get the full price back. If you see what I mean. Mm. Mm. That's quite a painful thing to admit, because I do think that many aspiring authors think that when you've published a book, the money automatically just comes rolling in and that you'll never look back. But that's not the case that you're, you're, where you're painting the story. No, and I, and I want people who are thinking of self-publishing to realize that. It's really important that, you know, if you're going to, let's say you're going to print 300 books, uh, and depending on who you're printing them through, they may cost £3 each as a, as a unit cost to achieve. Well, that means that that is a, a written-off cost they sell for £10. They cost £3 to produce. If you sold them for £10, you're still only making 7 because you've got your below-the-line cost, which is fixed. From that 7 then if you've done it through somebody else, if you supplied them wholesale to a retailer, the retailer then takes a cut. And every time somebody's involved in that chain, that's where you start you, you're losing more and more money. So the more you can sell yourself, the better. What about ebooks, Mike? Because they're generally more profitable. Do you get access to ebook sales and profits? Yes, uh, through Matador, who published the paperback, I chose to go the ebook route. Now, there's a lot to be said for that. First of all, you don't have to wait for it to be printed, and the ebook came out before the paperback did, so that's good. Second thing is, it's cheaper and easier and quicker for people to buy. It doesn't matter where they are in the world; they can just with the click of a keyboard, they can have your book on their Kindle, on their Kobo, on whatever reader they've chosen to have, uh, and, and it's there instantly. Uh, the, the unit cost is less, and you don't... I suppose I could sell them myself. To be honest, I haven't investigated that, Paul. I don't know. Uh, but I, this, I've sold 104 ebooks. And so, you know, that, that was quite a surprise to me. I, I, I had no concept of whether the ebook would, would sell well or, or not. But the beauty of it is you can change the pricing of your ebook at the drop of a hat uh, because it's, it's not something that's printed on the cover. Uh, you, you can do that. And what's the other thing? Oh, the other thing was that I really liked about the ebook was you, you can have images in it and the images don't cost much to do. If you want particularly color plates, in your paper book, then you could be looking at quite a lot of money. So I've got 16 plates, I think, 16 images uh, in my book against the current as an ebook, which don't exist in the paperback version. So that was important. And one of the other things, too, that I mentioned in the, in the session that was important, that you, you don't wait for your book to be printed before you create your website because you want to be able to promote your website in your book. So, in fact, before your book, you may have finished writing your book, but that's the time to create your website because then you can actually add your website to your cover or to the inside pages of your book and people know where to go for more information. If you leave it till after it's printed, it's too late. You've missed the boat. What lessons do you think you've learned from all of this, Mike? You've got two more books that hopefully are going to get written at some point. <laughs> What what will you know next time and do better next time? Ooh, that's a hard one. I probably wouldn't do anything differently. I'd probably do it all the same. Uh, I I might invest a little bit more in the cover of the book. I look with envy at some of the imagery on, on, on the covers of some of the books that are self-published, and I think, wow, the cover makes me want to read that. I'm not dissatisfied with my cover, but it's, it's a stock image that was taken by the designers at the publishers uh, on my behalf. They gave me a choice of things I, that, that I could select from, and it didn't cost very much to produce. It, it doesn't absolutely represent what the book's about, and, and perhaps it could, but then I think actually... A fictional book you've got more leeway because you can create a mystery about it about the cover you can you can draw people in by 
hints and tips. Oh, no, I'm talking myself in circles here, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) What would I do differently? Um, Nothing. I've enjoyed the self-publishing process so much that I would certainly self-publish again. That that is one thing I would do. And I, I, I don't see why I would be bothered going to mainstream publishers knocking on doors to be rejected. So I think you have to have a confidence and a, and a belief in yourself and your product. Um, but it's important that it's still a good product. Hmm. So hopefully we are going to see you with BIC button chair <laughs> for either the thriller or, or your other idea. You'll get over your time management and procrastination process. Yes. It's, having the time to invest in it and coincidentally the latest contract I've been working on finishes in two days after that I have no excuse not to actually devote myself to uh, either or or both of those books so perhaps I will you you document a lot of what goes on in your self-publishing life online thank you for that because you're producing some great material I'm going to share a little bit of it on your page and so where can we find out more about you online about the book and also about what what you do and what you write well the the book's website is against the current.uk which is quite straightforward and and that includes a little bit of biography about Liz and me includes news as you've pointed out there's blogs there about various aspects of publishing and book writing and so forth which i i enjoy writing about and and so the, the the beauty of a website is where you haven't been able to put images in a book is you can have a, a photo section. Now, that may not apply to a fictional book particularly, but to nonfiction, if you can't afford to put the images in your book, then you can certainly put them on your website because you can have as many as you like and they cost nothing to do. So in this day and age, people expect to see you on social media. So I'm on Twitter, Mike.bodner.nz, and... I've got a Facebook page as well for Against the Current, and I'm, t- I'm talking to the master here because you are so prevalent all over social media that, um, I mean, you, could, you should be telling me and telling everybody else <laughs> how, to, how to market yourself on social media. I have a lot to learn, master, but, um, yeah, that's, that, that's mainly it, really. I, I, these days, I regard the book website as the the site to go to for me as well i've got a google pages thing but as you pointed out quite early on in this conversation it's quite old and and the handle on it is long and convoluted Uh, if you search mike bodner google pages you'll find it but it's it's yeah that's been around for quite a long time now i do try and keep it up to date when i remember well, look, thanks ever so much for giving such a great presentation at the self-publishing conference. I really enjoyed that, got a lot of value for that. And thank you ever so much for your time on the podcast today. You're very welcome, Paul. Very welcome indeed. And uh, I'll, I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts myself. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. If you're new to self-publishing, you might also like to check out selfpublishingacademy.com, the step-by-step guide to getting your manuscript off your hard drive and into print. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.